Holy Word to the 26th Psalm. The 26th Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Yahweh, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. Prove me, O Yahweh, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and go around your altar, O Yahweh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house, and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil deeds, devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray your mercy on us. for shying away from portions of Your Word that aren't so culturally acceptable because we've chummed up with the world. I pray, Father, that You will put steel in our spine so that we might have confidence and boldness For the glory of your name. And so that we don't. Either cower before this world. Or start to use its own tactics. To think we could advance your kingdom thereby. But we would trust. In you. And that vengeance belongs to our God. And thus we could sing with joy and faith. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Modern worship courses have picked up on how lovely is your dwelling place, but I don't hear any singing out, vindicate me, O Yahweh, for I've walked in my integrity. Our problem with this psalm is our problem with the Psalter. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The first thing to settle as you come to the Psalms is that there indeed exists such a thing as the righteous man. He's not a mythical creature. As surely as the wicked man exists, so does the righteous man. And it's true, all, wicked men, all righteous men were once wicked men. All trees were once chaff. And the change was a mighty act of the grace of God to turn chaff into a tree. All true. The saints then are not self-righteous, nor are they yet perfect, but they are truly righteous. They have not only the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, they are progressively, more and more so, being sanctified and conformed to the image of the Christ whose righteousness is imputed to them. They are becoming more and more Christ-like, such that there is a line, there's a difference, there's a distinction between the saints and the wicked, between light and darkness. This division goes all the way back to the beginning. After Adam and Eve sinned, the promise was made that the seed of the woman would be at enmity, at war with the seed of the serpent. There was a line drawn, and this was immediately manifest in wicked Cain slaying righteous Abel. Whenever we open the Psalms then, our problem is this. We open them expecting them to smell like a floral shop. And instead, they smell like a battlefield. The line has been drawn in the sand, and you're either on one side or the other. Too many professing Christians are trying to play Switzerland. We are scared to offend God. He's the superpower. But we still want to trade with the world. But there can be no neutrality. You're on one side or the other. Do you want wickedness to fail? Do you want righteousness to be established? And if so, then this psalm can teach you how to pray. If not, you're smelling roses in the middle of, the mine, of a minefield, and you'll soon find that your naivete doesn't neutralize the threat. It doesn't do away with this reality that has existed since Sin and God's promise of grace. Now, this prayer consists of four harmonious petitions. The first two petitions uh, form a pair, vindicate me, and then verse, verse 1, and then verse 2, prove me, try me, test me. In the second set of petitions, David first asks not to be swept away with the wicked, verse 9, and then he wants to be redeemed, verse 11. So, uh, the first two petitions are largely synonymous. Vindicate me, try me, test me, prove me. The second set of petitions are a mirror image of one another. First stated negatively, then positively. Don't sweep me away with the wicked, redeem me. So we'll take each of these in turn, each pair in turn. The opening petition of the psalm, most strictly translated, is represented by the King James. simply says, Judge me. 
And what you have in all modern translations is an interpretive translation giving the expected outcome of that judgment that David is asking. Judge me, O Yahweh. Vindicate me. Now there is a sense in which you should never say this prayer. Judge me. There's a sense. You should never say this prayer with arrogance. You should never say this prayer with any kind of spite, um, any kind of rebellion. If you want to stand on your own two feet before God, rest assured of this. You, prepare to get intimately acquainted with the floor. If you want to stand on your own two feet before God, prepare to get acquainted with the floor. David isn't asking that. And that's clear in two ways. The first is this. Look at all the ways. We well, don't have time to get into them all. But there are so many ways that this psalm is linked with the one prior to it. The 25th psalm. In both of them, David is praying that God deal with his enemies. He's praying uh, this prayer of faith. He's trusting Yahweh to deal with them. He, he is trusting God in both of them. But in the 25th psalm, he says... Remember your mercy, O Yahweh, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. David isn't wanting to simply stand on his own two feet. Hey, judge me by what I've done. He is trusting in Yahweh and his covenant grace and love and forgiveness. Second, you can see how this is carried over into the current psalm albeit in muted terms. He isn't trusting in himself, but he's trusting in Yahweh, verse 1. He looks to Yahweh's unfailing covenant love, verse 3. He worships at the house of Yahweh, around the altar, proclaiming what Yahweh has done, verses 6 through 8. And his plea for vindication and redemption are a plea that God would be gracious to him, verse 11. See, David simply knows this. He knows that there is a line on the sand, in the sand. He knows he stands on one side, and he knows who stands on the other. And he knows who's made the difference. God. This is not personal. What David's crying out here isn't some personal vindictive vengeance that he's wanting to exact on those who dare to oppose him. David stands with the people of God. He stands with God. On the other side are the enemies of God. David isn't Pelagian, you see. He doesn't think that all men are basically good. And there are some wicked guys that stand on this side, and there are some more righteous men than the other. He, he's not Pelagian. He recognizes this. He says this in the 14th Psalm. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon Yahweh. And so first thing is, you see... All are wicked, and then all of a sudden there are people. And how did they get to be God's people? Grace. But that grace drew a line in the sand, and there is a war that ensues. And so there are God's people, and then there are those who want to eat God's people. 
Do we desire that they too, do we desire that the, those people who want to eat us would eat with us at the Lord's table of grace? Absolutely so. We desire that. We long for that. We pray for that. We share the gospel with our enemies in hopes that they will, like us, be turned from chaff into a tree. But our supreme hope is this, that God would magnify His name. And His magnifying His name means that He will vindicate His name. And that means He will vindicate the bride of Christ who bears the name of His Son. And it is righteous and just that we should long for this. And this is all magnified with David because he's God's king of God's people. If the king is not vindicated, God's people are destroyed. To be indifferent to this prayer is like being indifferent to Jesus remaining in the grave. It, it means that you don't want God's son to be vindicated to be manifestly glorified before this earth and every knee bow to Him. But God did raise His King. The verdict that this world tried to put on His Son was shown to be false. He is exalted. Every knee will bow. His Son's glory will be manifest. And to this, the saints should exclaim, Come, Lord Jesus. And Father, magnify Your Son. By the salvation of the saints, or by the judgment of the wicked, may the glory of Yahweh cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Or we could put it this way. If you understand Psalm 1 and you can sing it, then you can sing Psalm 2. If you can sing the first psalm, then you're, you're longing for the second psalm. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now the grounds upon which David makes this plea are as having walked in his integrity and his steady trust in Yahweh, verse 2. Vindicate me, O Yahweh, for... And David in this isn't claiming perfection. He isn't saying, I've merited this. Give me my due. David is establishing, I stand on this side of the line. You may not be able to pray that you're a David or a John. I'm a David. I'm a John. Vindicate me. And if you do pray that way, you didn't really understand this psalm at all. You, you, you don't want to pray, I'm a David, I'm a John, vindicate me. But you pray, I know I'm not a Judas. I know I'm not a Pilate. I know that I stand on this side of the line with the people of God. Do you fear Yahweh? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you walk in the ways of his, of, that He's given in his, us in His Word? And if so... You'll be hated by this world to varying degrees. And that hatred is an expression of animosity, not really to you personally. It's an expression of their hatred of the king to whom you bow. And as you understand it as such, not that it's personal anymore, but this is an expression of their hatred of Christ. And whenever you understand that, you should desire that the name of Christ be vindicated. 
Your cry for vindication then as the people of God is a cry for Christ to be exalted. Outside of Christ, God's fiery judgment and condemnation is man's greatest dread and terror. But in Christ, it becomes the saints' vindication and salvation come to its consummation. Whenever our redemption is full and complete, it will mean the destruction of all of Jesus' enemies. The second petition of David comes quickly in verse 2. And the point isn't whenever he asks, try me, test me, prove me. The point isn't that David has a pure heart, but that he has a true heart. David isn't saying, I've got a perfect mind, so prove it, examine it, test it out. He's not saying, I have a perfect mind. He's saying, I have a renewed mind. He isn't saying, I have a perfect heart. He's saying, I have a regenerate heart. Prove me, test me, try me. Here's the way Michael Wilcock comments on it. He says, it is a plea that the divine refiner should test, try, examine David to demonstrate not that the metal is pure. It isn't, hence the need for refining. But that it is precious. It really does belong in the refiner's workshop. And again, David gives the basis or grounds for this petition, and they function, as it were, as the proofs of his goldness, of his genuinely being the Lord's. And the first is that, Yahweh's steadfast love is continually before His eyes. And the word that you have in the Hebrew represented by the two English words, steadfast love, is that rich word, hesed, that no one English word really does the job at getting to. Indeed, two English words I don't think are sufficient. I don't think steadfast love really gives you an idea of what's being said here. The most concise effort I can make at it that I think is reasonable is Yahweh's unfailing covenant love or His steadfast covenant loyalty or His continual uh, or unceasing, maybe better, unceasing covenant faithfulness. You have to immerse yourself in the reality of what the Hebrews have experienced whenever they use this Hebrew word. It's not something that's alien to you. Think of Yahweh's promises to Abraham and His faithfulness in redeeming them out of Egypt by mighty signs and His providing the Passover lamb so that they could escape judgment themselves. And then His continual mercy and grace that He he shows them again and again despite all their sins and His faithfulness to His covenant. And then all of that being your inheritance by the one who was foreshadowed in it all. And His continual mercy to the church despite all, all her harlotry. And now you've got a sense of what it means that Yahweh is faithful to covenant. That's the idea of his hased, his unfailing covenant love towards his people. And David says, I've set that before my eyes. And so again, you see that David is not 
thinking he somehow merited anything in this psalm. The mind that David asks God to test and prove is a mind that has eyes set on God's unfailing covenant mercy. The second, the God who redeems His people, commands His people. He redeems them, He purchases them to Himself, and thus He's their Lord. And David acknowledges this, saying that He, uh, he walks in Yahweh's faithfulness. It's a peculiar way to get at Yahweh's laws, is it not? Whenever you are one of His redeemed, God's commands do not come upon you with the crushing burden. They come to you as His faithfulness, His goodness to lead you and instruct you in righteousness and the way of life. In this, David's plea is neither then legalistic nor antinomian. David doesn't think he's climbed the ranks by his own merits, and thus that he can call in a favor for recognition. David is not asking for a public promotion because of his hard work. But neither is he playing games with the Nazis, and yet presuming he will not be involved in their war trial. And so can you see why David then proceeds to say that he hates the assembly of evildoers, and he loves the house of God? In verses 4 through 8. When you hate the enemies of God because they are the enemies of God, it really does clarify which side you think you stand on in all of this. Inversely, if you're playing cards with the Nazis four nights a week, it's very likely futile to appeal to Roosevelt to vindicate you because of which side you claim. Whenever we look at texts like this, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. Perhaps in reaction to those vitriolic, angry expressions of fundamentalism like Westboro Baptist, perhaps in in reaction to all of that, we're quick to say, but wasn't Jesus a friend of sinners? Yes. And He redeemed them. He called them out of darkness and into light and He changed them. He delivered them from this present evil age. Should we love our enemies, pray that God would grant them repentance? Absolutely. And we should pray that God be God. And this means the magnifying of Him as a God of justice as well as a God of grace. Don't try to excuse this kind of language away. Well, that's Old Testament. James 4.4 You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Yes, love your neighbor across the street. And pray for the Christian baker and all the forces of evil that are against him 
that have ruined, taken away his business, left him destitute, pray that all those forces be brought to nothing. Pray for justice concerning the murdering of saints in Syria. And pray that God would bring many Syrians to know the name of Christ. And realize that those are not at war. Those two petitions are not at war with each other. Rather, the one is very likely going to be what leads to the other in any kind of temporal sense. If we don't pray this way, May I suggest that the reason is we don't really want to see Dagon lying flat on his face and decapitated before Yahweh. We like the idolatries of this world. We sit with men of falsehood because we like their lies. We consort with hypocrites because they advise us in a way that we can give the appearance of righteousness as well and still cling to our passions and desires of the flesh. We love the assembly of evildoers because their idolatry is attractive to us. We sit with the wicked because we find the delicacies of their tables appetizing. The American church doesn't pray this way because she's full of chaff. The righteous pray this way because they're like trees that drink up the Word of God, and meditate on His law day and night. We don't want judgment to fall upon the house of the wicked because we're comfortable on their couch. The trees drink up the water of the Word. The chaff, they are driven about by every wind of doctrine. If we don't pray this way, it's because we're being driven by the world instead of rooted in the word. Whenever judgment does fall though, it will fall first on the house of God. And no one prays that that would happen so much as those who are in the house of God. God, purge your church because no one so blasphemes your name as those who bear it falsely. Purge your house. The true saints long that this be so. May the world be purged. And may the church be purged. May the name of Christ be exalted above all. In contrast to David's hatred of evildoers, we're next told that he loves the habitation of Yahweh's house. Verses 7-8 through eight all concern worship in the house of Yahweh, which at this point was still a tent. The, the first uh, petition David brings in this, I wash my hands in innocence, draws upon the imagery of the, of the tabernacle court or the temple court in this way. You had the tabernacle, you had the altar, and in between them there was the bronze laver. He's washing his hands in innocence. And again, what David is doing here with the flow of the psalm, he's not saying, I'm innocent of sin before you. He's saying, I'm innocent of their accusations. Here's the kind of thing David was dealing with. Psalm 71 gives you a flavor for it. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those, wa those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. 
Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. The wicked will try to spin judgment on the righteous. The wicked will try to spin judgment on the righteous. They will accuse the saints of hatred and ungodliness, of being unloving and kind. And when they do, we shouldn't plead guilty. Whenever the world points their fingers at us, there are many times we should say, I am guilty of that sin before God, and graciously He has made propitiation for those sins. Let me tell you about my Redeemer. There are times whenever the world accuses us of sin, and we should say, I'm a lot worse than that. In fact, every time they accuse us of sin, I'm a lot worse than that, but there are times whenever we should say, but I'm not that kind of bad. Or, that isn't bad. Whenever we're guilty of sin before God, we confess it, we repent. But whenever this world tries to slam our righteousness as sin, we should not cow. We should not bend. Whenever the world condemns our righteousness as sin, we shouldn't shouldn't feel shame. We shouldn't feel guilt. Whenever the crowd tries to shame righteousness... Don't hang your head in shame. Lift it up all the more. Wear it as glory. Whenever the world says that a wedding is just as beautiful if there are two wedding dresses up front rather than the typical dress and tuxedo, insist that it isn't beautiful and that a wedding simply isn't. It's a, that's not marriage. It's a mirage. It's a fake. And don't buckle under the intoleristas' accusations of intolerance. Whenever you stand for righteousness, stand. Don't bow. The application is broad and diverse. Any kind of stand you're taking for righteousness, whenever the world tries to shame it, whenever the world talks about women's choice, you know that you're standing on truth, You're standing for life. You're standing for righteousness. Don't cower. Don't bow. Don't feel shame. Stand. David goes, you see him next, he's going around the altar and he's proclaiming thanksgiving and he's telling of Yahweh's wondrous deeds. Verses 6 through 7. The altar is a place where God provided blood. Leviticus 17.11 God says, I've provided the blood to atone for your sins. This is the altar where God provides atonement so that He may dwell among His people in covenant love and mercy. And David is circling it, speaking of Yahweh's great deeds. He's speaking of Yahweh's. uh, He's praising Yahweh. Yahweh dwells in the midst of His people that He's redeemed by grace, by the blood He's provided. And all this is a way of seeing again that David's petitions are rooted in God's grace and mercy. We love, he loves God's habitation, but David is acknowledging in this, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4. This is the song of the redeemed then. Those whom God has loved in his beloved son are then moved in gratitude and joy to express as we see the sons of Korah leading Israel in 84, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Yahweh. Of host. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And those who love the house of Yahweh 
hate the tents of wickedness. As Psalm 84 goes on to say, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, for I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And David's third petition now, verse 9, is that he not be swept away with, the, with sinners, with the wicked. And this sets you up for the concluding contrast that will come at the end of the psalm. My foot stands on level ground. So you go from this petition of, of not wanting to be swept away like chaff to this rooted tree knowing he stands with the people of God. David often is the specific target of the bloodlust of these evil devices, of these hands full of bribes. David does not share in their ways. He walks in integrity, verse 11, and so he does not want to share in their end. Their hands are full of wickedness. David maintains his integrity pleading that God redeem him, verse 11, and be gracious to him. And then he comes to this statement of confidence. Having nothing to do with the assembly of the wicked, rather in the house of Yahweh, this is the temple imagery brought more full, he's not standing alone. He's standing with the great assembly, not the assembly of the wicked, but the great assembly of the redeemed. And standing there, he has sure footing, confident of Yahweh's redemption. One reason that we don't... Be, let, me, let me put it this way. Because we don't sing like this, we don't have confidence. And that's manifest in two ways. We're either... Screaming or shaking? Because we don't sing like this, we're screaming or shaking. We're, we're in this screaming match with the world, thinking if we just get the bigger meta, megaphone, we can get them to cower and we can establish the kingdom by pressure and might and by force, using the same weapons they are. Or we shake. We do cower. We are afraid. The saints sing, they lament, they petition. And as we see David so many times, our song may begin with lament, but it so often ends with confidence in the God that we've sung to. And the way it came there is by way of song. A song of faith, a song of trust. The trees will stand. The chaff will be driven away. Stand firm in righteousness. Stand with the saints. And when you do so, know you are standing on level ground. The saints can sing this psalm in confidence because their king, who represents them, sung it without disappointment. He sung this song, he was vindicated, he represents us, and thus we can sing it with confidence. As we have trusted our crucified Lord for our justification, so we can trust our risen Lord for vindication. 
God's king has been vindicated. His righteousness will be manifest. The deliverance of his bride is certain. What David could only sing in part, Jesus sang to the full. Jesus hit every note perfectly. All the high ones and all the low ones. His righteousness was fulfilled. He fulfilled all righteousness for his bride and he bore all their sins. His heart was pure. His mind was perfectly set on the will of his father. He did not buddy up with the wicked. He was numbered with the transgressors. Shame and ridicule were heaped upon him. And though obedience meant taking the cup of the Father's wrath and draining it down to his dregs, he walked in integrity perfectly, not wavering, being faithful to his Father. And then he rose from the grave. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. Every enemy is being put under his feet. His kingdom of, ad- of redemption is advancing, calling forth God's elect from every people, every tribe, every nation. He will return and his saints will ride forth with him on white steeds as he goes to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we are his bride. made pure by the blood of the Lamb. We are part of the great assembly. Vindication will come. Do not scream. Do not shake. Sing, saints. Sing. Vindication will come. His redemption will be full. We will not be swept away. We stand upon the rock, Jesus Christ. We stand on God's truth. Bless His name in the great assembly. Because all of this is of grace. Sinners, the lines have been drawn. The Son died For sinners. And is the righteousness of all who trust in Him. And so we plead with you. Repent of your sins. And throw yourself at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kiss the Son. Or you will be swept away. Let's pray. Holy Father, all glory, all honor be to Christ. Father, have mercy on your people who have flirted with this world. Wash your bride by the water of the word and make her holy. And as we stand in truth and integrity for righteousness and truth, May we do so with heads held high, singing joy and love in our hearts, desiring that your redemption spread to the ends of the earth, calling forth unworthy such as ourselves, confident that justice will roll, that all evil has been dealt with at the cross of Christ or will be dealt with in the judgment He brings when He comes again. And so, we do not shake. We do not scream. 
but we sing all glory be to Christ. In whose name we ask this. Amen.